0: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode of Leaders in Risk Insider series, we have a very special guest, Brent Return. In today's episode, we cover a couple of key things. We talk a little bit about enabling the business. One of the other key things that we talk about is cyber insurance and how we got that to go down by a third. And finally, we talk about how significant risk reduction is simple, easy, and cheap with some practical examples of how to do it. Hi, Brent. Can you introduce yourself and tell a little bit about the company that you work for?
1: By all means, uh, my name is Brent Dieterning. I am a CISO. I've been that way for uh, about a year or so. AFNI, who I work for, is a, about a 10,000-person company. We run call centers, primarily in the Philippines, but elsewhere around the world as well. And I'm a little bit unique because I spent 19 years on the vendor side. worked for SecureWorks for 19 years. Love the experience. 15 years in operations, four years in sales. But they give me a little bit of a unique perspective coming from sales, from the vendor over to be a CISO That's a little bit unique. So fantastic! Uh, I love my role. My stress has never been lower. My satisfaction never been higher. It's it's awesome. I, I really am enjoying life.
0: It's not having that sales quota anymore, and <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know that wasn't the worst thing. But it's uh, I mean, it's fun. Like I like doing this. I like to think I'm not bad at it. I've been able to meet so many great people to help me and mentor me along the way that it's been, uh, how can't you have fun?
0: Before we get any further, one of the things we'd like to sort of just ask is, what you get up to outside of work? Do you get any hobbies and things you're into?
1: So my kind of our tribe, our friends around here, I'm an L. Lutheran, which is kind of a, a big deal. And uh, my family are big NFL fans. Uh, Green Bay Packers are my thing, Right. I'm also a big hunter. I like whitetail deer, and I've hunted a bunch of bigger, bigger, dangerous things around the world. And part of being a big football family, so I have two sons, one five, one ten, and uh, they're both playing tackle football this year, which is uh, pretty outstanding. My big guy, he's ten years old, five foot two, and 155 pounds. So he's pretty menacing on the line, and that is uh, that's immense amounts of fun for me. So we do a lot of that kind of stuff. I'm a Jets fan. I don't know if I told you this last time, so.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: you know, the Packer Nation's kind of divided on the whole Aaron Rodgers thing, but we won't get into
0: that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we'll catch up on it there <laughs> offline. So you mentioned about your current role. Can you give us a little bit of an overview, a little bit more of a deep dive of your career today and how you got into your role? Because I'm intrigued yeah. how you went from sales and you've ended up in a, a CETO role.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I kind of graduated college, worked for a startup. Well, so it's funny, I worked for a company, and on my second day, they said, hey, we're going to outsource all of IT. And so on my second day out of college, well, six months later, I had no jobs. Was like, all right, went to work for a startup in the St. Louis area. That was great and fine, but they paid me late for two months, and then they did not pay me at all for two months, and that's kind of a problem. And then I was working for 21 for a company called Luric that was bought a few years later by secure. I spent time and I had lead of my title for 20 years, right? I mean, I was like the technical grandpa guy, right? And that was in implementations or training or operations or stock manager, advice management, you name it, whatever I did it technically, right? But then about 2015 or so, like we needed someone to jump on this whole cloud thing. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? So I jumped on the cloud grenade And then because I was working in operations and with development and product management and all that, all of a sudden I was working with people outside operations and they were bringing me in on sales calls and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, this is fine. And I'm pretty animated, right? I believe this stuff in my bones, right? And so that we kind of formed a role for me called Global Solution Lead. It happened to sit under the pre-sales organization and that worked fine and I like it. And so I went from global solution lead of cloud to kind of the new platform, which was XDR. So I helped build the old platform for SecureWorks. I helped build the new platform and helped sell it. So that's really how I became, got into sales and kind of the authoritative opinion haver role. And during some of that time, 2015, 16, 17 in there, prior to COVID, remember that, right? I was interacting with a lot of CISOs and I was like, you know what? I think I can do that job. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not saying right now, but like, I think I could. But I live in the big cornfield west of Chicago, and I was not driving my happy butt downtown every day. Like, that was not going to happen, right? So I just kind of, okay, forget that. Then COVID happened. And all of a sudden, people are okay with like executive kind of people being remote. And I was like, huh. So I learned how to take my opinions And I learned how to get an executive strategic lens to filter them through. And I started saying the same things I had been saying for many, many years with a little bit different words, a little bit different language, and used that. And I found out that it resonated. But when I interviewed, everyone wanted a technical leader, not a strategic executive. And I was like, if I'm going to be a technical leader, I'm going to stay right where I am. I like it here. I've been here 19 years, right? or 18 or whatever it was at the time. And I found a place, a little bit by hand stance, and I interviewed at AFNI to be a director under the CIO, which was going to be fine with me, right? Nothing wrong with reporting to the CIO. Uh, but the offer came back to report directly to the CEO. And I was like, hey, that works for me, right? And I've enjoyed it. My CIO and I are in lockstep. We could not be better partners to enable our business. And it works really, really well. So. Hey, if I did report to him, that'd be fine. I don't happen to, and that works fine too. So that's really been kind of my uh, transition. The curious thing is that I'm not technical. I had to quit telling other people I was technical, and then I had to tell myself. I had to quit telling myself that I was technical. And I set that down. I don't have access to any of my team's tools. I don't pretend to know anything. I was talking to one of my guys a little while ago, and I was like, so bring out the crayons and explain to me how this works. And he's like, didn't you do this for like 15 years? I'm like, eh, ignore that. Ignore the man down the curtain. That guy is dead. That guy's gone. He set that stuff down. Bring out the cracks and explain this to me. So that's been the
0: progression. Fantastic. So you've kind of mentioned a little bit, but can you talk about the size and stage of the company's information security program? So they can get better understanding of where you're at.
1: Yeah, a little bit unique here again. I am in maintenance mode. So uh, we were in a pretty solid place before, or when I came, and tuned and tweaked that and did some things and being able to mitigate the big, huge material risk, right? The things that are super likely and really, really bad. Those are not an issue, right? Now, what remains are things that would be mildly surprising that they happened, cool, and eh, kind of sort of bad, right? But that enables me to have a very calm structured approach to things, like things aren't necessarily urgent, right? There aren't fires that burn. There are things that we want to address and there are things that we are addressing, but I'm happy. And to that end, I think we'll mention cyber insurance here in a little bit, but if I can, I would like to give budget back to my company uh, when contracts expire and all that kind of stuff, because I'm only gonna use what I really, really need to do it. And that is not an ever increasing number, right? We can get to a maintenance mode, we can get to a point, even with changing adversaries, even with changing things that protect the company and allow us to take the smart risks, right? Because we all are sitting here, we're all working for companies today because someone took risk, right? Companies survive taking risks. I make sure that we don't take the really bad, huge risks right? Or I mitigate those. But the other risk I enable staffing. to happen. My favorite analogy is that a good CISO is like the wing on the back of a Formula One race car. It exists to create friction, but it creates friction so that the car can go faster, right? Everything I do, every minute I spend, every dollar I spend is to enable the business, to enable us to go faster, better,
0: you know, all that. Can I just confirm a few things there? So just because I want to pick in a few bit when you say maintenance mode, what you mean is you're happy with the current state and you're not thinking that there's a whole redo, retransformation. It's actually continual improvements.
1: Yes. We knock down the
0: big, big rocks,
1: right? And we are making incremental improvements. And those incremental improvements can be made, generally speaking, without a ton of time and especially without a ton of money. I don't need 50% more budget. I don't need 50% more people. I'm good. I'm good. Could I use, you know, one role here? Or one? Yeah, that's fine, right? But it's not like there's no big, huge thing. So I'm like, oh, my God, we have to fix this or bad, evil things happen. It's not like that at all, right? And because it's small incremental improvements that we can just make progress in over time, that gives us a lot of mental and emotional bandwidth to step back and take a very structured, very calm approach to the entire thing, which is an Outstanding place to be. This year, I'm doing tabletop exercises, right? Last year, I had a couple free writing assessments from adversaries, so I'd rather do the tabletops on a Tuesday afternoon than the uh, real deal adversary test at two o'clock in the morning, right? Now we can do both, and we proved that we can do both, and we can handle both without material impact to the business, which is cool. But at the end of the day,
0: I'd rather plan out the tabletop than I would deal with the incident. The other thing that you said is about prioritization. Is there like a particular framework? Is there something you're using to say, actually, this is how we prioritize what's important?
1: Yeah. So first I'll give you the snarky answer. The snarky answer is that I really don't like frameworks at all. I don't use them. I don't I don't want them. I don't care what my maturity score is. That said, there are four hills that I will die on as a CISO. And I have accomplished these four. Um, the first is 100% MFA. And I'll caveat that a little bit, that it's strong MFA. I'm rolling out YubiKeys. Shipping logistics aside, where everyone will have a Yubi-Key for everything. That's cheap and easy. Second hill I will die on is uh, 100% device posture management. So you don't connect to anything I have unless you're on my corporate device. Yes, that means that you can't check your webmail from your iPad on your couch. I'm sorry. And the third is 100% EDR coverage. And the fourth is very rapid external patching. So it's not like that's all we do. But I started with those big four hills that I will die on, right? And by dying on those four hills and getting all of those done 100% buttoned up, that substantially mitigates a whole lot of other risks, right? Now, are there other things that we have done and are doing? Yes, absolutely. No, No doubt, right? But those are the four big ones because at the end of the day, significant risk reduction is simple, easy, and cheap. Simple is a technology statement, easy is a people process statement, and cheap is just cheap, right? So we have that technology to do everything that we realistically need to do. The people process, that's my job, right? My job is to make those things easy, right? And so that is all about emotion, relationship, empathy, people respond to their incentives. Things like that, and that's square in my alley. That's my job to make those things easy, and that's what I've been able to do. Now, again, like it's not me. Like I, my organization is fantastic to work with, but I also interviewed for the right culture, right? So I, I interviewed for a culture that I could succeed in. I think I found that, and I think I've done well with what I've been given.
0: Yeah, I wasn't thinking more just to clarify a few things. I was thinking more actually to use something like a fair analysis, something that you can actually quite easily quantify and go, for example, rather than, because look, I agree with you, Like, am I a three controller or a four? What does it mean? It's very difficult to quantify. And you can go round and round in circles, spending lots of money on lots of frameworks when you're not looking at risk. That was more my my question.
1: Sure. So before I was a CISO, I did not know what a debate uh, qualify or quantify risk really was and now I have a very good appreciation for that in fact here's my the second edition of how to measure anything in cybersecurity security risk right it's on my desk just came out a few weeks ago I'm not mad I'm not mad and I know all about fair and I used to say well I qualify risk in financial terms which was a way of saying like a directionally accurate number which is a guess. Right. Oh, this is a $15 million risk. Could be 20, could be 10. It's not five. It's not 30, right? Good enough, right? Now I prefer, uh, Andy Ellis just released 1% leadership, the book. He's outstanding former CISO of Akamai. He has a model that are really, really, he calls this pyramid of pain and it's kind of like half of the, uh, likelihood versus impact, uh, five by five matrix, but is how likely is something? and how impactful. And that's where you take care of things that are like happening right now, devastatingly bad. Don't talk about it. Don't measure it, don't talk about it. Just go fix it, right? Same thing for we're surprised it's not happening right now and it's really, really bad, right? You don't talk about those things. Those are dumpster fires. Go put them out, go fix them, right? And if you fix those things, then you've knocked down the material risk. And at the end of the day, if you knock down the material risk, you're doing a pretty damn good job, right? Then you look and say, okay, we would be pretty surprised if this happened and it'd be kind of sort of bad. You prioritize those things above the things like, well, it would take like someone kidnapping the CEO to make this happen. Like you don't worry about the, at the very least those things are a lower priority, right? And so that's really where I am. I'm dealing with things that would be mildly mildly surprising and kind of bad. I'll deal with those, I'll knock those out. And what order I deal with them, I don't even care, right? Pick one, we got 10 things, pick one. I don't care which one, pick a maximum. And, and I really don't then care about what is the dollar value of risk? It's like, I, I kill it all, that's fine, I don't care. Whatever the number is, right? Because it's easy, relatively easy to identify material versus not material. If you know the business, right? And by and large, that's not hard. Go ask the CFO. go ask the CEO, like, hey, what would be a really, really bad day? Like what would kill us as a business? Oh man, if our revenue came from this, if this happened, it'd be cool. Go ahead and get that. The thing I like about it is it's quick, right? It takes me that long to identify. And at the end of the day, my straw man hypothetical example would you rather see so come in and spend $100,000 in six months studying the problem, or would you rather they come in and spend three months and $50,000 rolling out YubiKey's to everyone? Which do you want your data with? I want my data with the YubiKey company, right? I don't care what the assessment says. Nearly as much as like, just go
0: fix it. Just go do it. It's just an insurance policy, isn't it? In a lot of cases, the gap assessment is enough to say, okay, well, you've probably done, okay, I know where I need to spend because PwC or Deloitte have told me where I need to go and spend or whoever you've paid to go and do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, if I do an assessment and I'm surprised with what it says, uh, then
0: I don't know. Something's wrong, isn't it? It's either you, you didn't know or their assessment is probably a little bit.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, like, come on. Like, it's, I don't know. For me, it's it's pretty easy. It's like, okay, so where does the revenue come from? It's like, okay, so if all this stuff happens, who cares? If that happens, who? Yeah, that's a problem. Go fix
0: that thing. I like that. There's only one thing I would change. I would use a four because I hate fives because people always pick the middle. The amount of people pick a three when you say there's a five by five, they always pick the middle. It's like...
1: The Pyramid of Pain, I like it because that's what Andy said. He's like, yeah, so the middle... It's like empty, right? Everyone, it, so it's a pyramid, right? You have likelihood up here and impact over here, right? And then you knock out the tier zero, tier 1s.
0: But people would naturally pick the three, don't they? That's the problem. I always think with the three that, that it's kind of a cop out because it's neither good nor bad. They'll go,
1: yeah, it's yeah. A three. <laughs> yeah, you know, just like just go, go fix it, go fix it until you say, okay, this is the scenario under which this guy would be like, a, oh, well. If we're worried about that, I, then we're probably in a pretty good place. Yeah, exactly.
0: That's the idea. So you kind of mentioned who you're reporting to before, but do you mind just going through who are your direct reports? What does your kind of team structure look like? Sure. So I report directly to the
1: CEO, which is uh, new for me and pretty cool. I like it. My CEO is wonderful and great. It's easy needs to work with. I have two teams. Um, under me, I have my identity team. So being that we run call centers, that is a low margin, high attrition business. No matter who you talk to no matter what you do, that's the way it is. So we work within our client systems for the most part, meaning that we have to manually create uh, provision, deprovision accounts all the time, right? So I have one team that they do all identity stuff, primarily for my client stuff, um, but also for us internally. Um, my other team is more traditional InfoSec, right? That is GRC, security operations, uh, business analysts, it's all of that kind of stuff, and then me. I structure that. I actually I have one direct report, and then the other teams report to him. That works for me. There are plenty of other structures. It's just that's the one that I settle on. It works.
0: Yeah. No. 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 It's interesting because it, it, you are seeing more like just I, the more as I talk to, either now they actually like you say reporting to the CEO because it's kind of sometimes maybe not marking your own homework or conflicts of interest, or yeah. they're going, which is very similar to like an audit committee essentially, and it? it's kind of saying well we probably should employ the same thing about (laughs) protecting our information.
1: I'm of the opinion. So I have an opinion, other people have experiences and the man with an experience is seldom at the whim of a man with an opinion, right? So that said, I report to the CEO, but I don't think it is required. I think that what matters the most is your ability to work effectively across the executive team, right? And Personally, at my current organization, I could do that whether reported to the CIO, the CFO, the CEO, or anyone really. Like there would not be a challenge, a challenge in my environment. I don't know if that's necessarily I guess elsewhere. I give the impression
0: not, but again, like I interviewed for the culture in which I could succeed. So we're going to move into the deep dive area where normally we, we have a specific subject. So you kind of talked about significant risk reduction being simple and easy earlier. Okay, can you give me some examples of kind of where you can implement that?
1: Yeah, sure. So again, my the first cell I die on is MFA, right? And we're rolling out YubiKeys to everyone, right? Now that is a simple technology, right? It's also easy. It's not hard to sell like, hey, I'm gonna save you time. We're going to increase security and it's going to make your life easier, right? That's universally good, right? And they're relatively inexpensive, quite honestly. And the benefits to security, like how much do I care about phishing if everyone has Ubi keys? Virtually zero, right? I think UB says 99.9% risk reduction. Cool. I'm down. I like it, right? So, but additionally, how much do I care about pick some other risk? Less, right? so UBQs are a top tier control that make everything, all other risks reduced significantly right? Depending on the risk and all that, right? So they're not a magic bullet, but they're pretty darn good, right? So that's a prime example where I've knocked down risk. It was simple, it was easy, and it was cheap. So that works. Now, if you stack two or three of those things on top of one another, like MFA with UV keys, device posture, you must be on my device to connect to anything I have. EDR is on everything. And all of our external attack servers, which is not very big to start with, is all patched up, configurations, everything, very, very rapidly. Like, you're in a pretty good spot. Like, you knocked out a whole lot of risk right from the get go, right? So, I like that approach. I like that approach a lot.
0: The other thing that we touched on was cyber insurance. So, I think we all know people probably about five, six years ago, all got cyber insurance. It was quite cheap. (laughs) They now have come to pay for their cyber insurance and it's about half the cost of the breach, let's <laughs> say. So you said yours went down by a third when we caught off. Can you explain to me how you did that?
1: So I spent all last year, cyber insurance was something I looked into a lot. Like what reduces it? How can you do it? Like all this stuff, right? I implement my four hills, right? I implemented all that. And at the end of the day, we have a broker. So I had 12 to 15 underwriters who were going to be in the call. I developed that one moderate, like, print a reasonable survey about our program and all that. And I put myself in the shoes of the underwriters and I said, what do I need to hear as an underwriter to say that program is not going to cost me money. We are not going to pay out a claim for that. And I thought I was like, well, I think these are risk people. I think they understand actual. I think they understand where their claims are, what the risk is, survivor bias. I think they understand all this. I think they know. So I sold my program in two slides and 10 minutes. And the first slide was those four hills that I will die. In. MFA, device posture, EDR, rapid external patching. The second slide was a huge list, literally columns of tables, listing all the things that we do. Like, do we have policies? Yes, we have policies. So we have this program. Yes, 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 of course. Yes, of course, yes, of course, right? I said, yes, of course, a whole lot of times. List that, fielded, I don't know, a handful of very, very specific questions about our backup solution and things like that. And we got off and I spent the whole year researching, feeding my executive team, Wall Street Journal articles, saying expected to go by 20%. My broker said the same thing ahead of that call. We were paying about 6% of the coverage, right? So about 6% coverage was expecting to pay more, but I had heard anecdotal stories from some CISOs getting quotes. For 10% of the coverage and premium. And I was like, ah, and it went down. So we went from about 6% to about 4%. And that was pretty cool. So I'm not positive, but uh, it certainly appears that what happened is the underwriters uh, were picking up what I was laying down and saying, hey, we like that. We like that a lot. That guy, that program is not going to cost us money. And so my premium has been down by, like I said, by a third. And I don't have a magic spell to cast. I don't have a magic PowerPoint slides to present, but I do have the significant risk reduction is simple, easy, and cheap, right? And for me, that looked like MFA, UBHs, uh Device Posture, EDR, and Rapid Patching. Or Rapid, not only patching, but configs and all that externally. So that worked for me. Will it work for you
0: or someone else? Uh, I don't know, but it worked for me. It depends on the industry as well, isn't it? There's like lots of factors, but I guess it's like having the good set of security controls in place and the evidence. Because I think like you look at what it was five years ago, you see like like three questions. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then I'll, and now it's like, oh, right, okay, so you've taken X framework and now you're using that as the... Not you, I mean the, the underwriters <laughs> now say, okay, let's baseline you against these. I think it definitely helps. Controlling like all your devices because I think you can probably have a little bit more certainty over the things you're saying rather because I think that probably makes a big difference. I mean, it's a small
1: amount of inconvenience for some people can't check webmail on their iPad, right? But it's a whole lot of confidence, right? Because so if you want to connect to anything I have, you must be on my device. Well, do I have a hard time with that inventory? Then probably not, right? I mean, there's physical devices on the network, maybe, but. Then you're physically intruding my building okay that could happen right but in general like bad guys can't connect and especially with YubiKeys, right so is and device posture meaning i have a fair degree of confidence that you are who you say you are and your machine is with us it is we're
0: getting there that's a pretty good top tier control pretty good baseline to start from right so you've said quite a couple of things but like what do you think is really working so, like, if you had to pick one thing, you've given you four, but is there one other thing that you would nail your colors to the master and say, this really works?
1: I'm a big fan of UBs, right? Because so we face a moderately skilled, I'm going to call one step below nation state level adversary. Uh, CrowdStrike has a bunch of ride ups on them, and we've been battling them, dealing with them. They are all over our uh, the BPO industry, the business process, our sort of entry. There's a lot of us who do the same thing, run big call centers, right? And so we, I have a relationship with those CISOs. I relate to big clients that we share, and all that kind of stuff. So that group attacks all of us, right? And so, like, I know a lot about my adversary, and I know a lot about what they're capable of. Uh, we've seen it firsthand. They're very, very well coordinated. They are, like I said, moderately skilled. There's a lot of them. I mean, well, decent number. And YubiKeys is a very, very effective control for us. It's probably the most cost-effective control that we have.
0: We've talked about what's going well. What do you think is your biggest concern? So 2023 or five just into five months of it, what is your biggest concern for the rest of the year? My biggest
1: concern is that I'm not creative enough and that I don't know that there is something that I don't know that I don't know, right? I'm relatively confident in the things that I know that I know. Or even in known unknowns, right? But unknown unknowns, that is a bit of a worry. And so, but that is also why I listen and I talk to a whole lot of people and I listen to a lot of vendors and I ask a lot of vendors the basic same question, which is why do I care? How does this enable my business? Or how does not having this cost me money? Like tell me a plausible story where not having this cost me money, right? And If someone's like, oh, you have a blind spot here, I will listen. That is absolutely a thing. So I wouldn't say it's a work. like I sleep very well at night. I'm happy, it's all good. But what do I enjoy thinking about? I enjoy thinking about and with my team and with other people like, hey, on this really long flight over, can you think about what would bite us that we don't see? If you were a bad guy and I give you 10 million bucks in 24 hours, how would you do, right? That kind of scenario, and that's what we ask ourselves often. And uh, we'll see. Hopefully I get a better answer. Hopefully I find something and go, aha, and then I can go we'll fix it. it.
0: Let's flip it a little bit to talk about information security professionals. There's a lot of people either wanting to get into the industry or already in it. Main skills you look for. What makes a great person who works in information security?
1: So I am not hiring now, but I have hired hundreds of times in my career. in operations centers, things like that. Right. And I've been saying this for literally 20 years. I do not care about technical now, very much, a little bit, right? But I care a lot about personality characteristics. I care a lot about coachability, grit, resilience, things like that, passion. I care a lot about those things, no matter what the role is, and really no matter what the industry is. Those are the kind of people that I can lead well. Those are the kind of people that I'm attracted to, And it works now and the great thing about coachability, grit and resilience and attributes like that is that they cross over a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different types, a lot of different everything, right? So you can have neurodiverse people, like any amount of diversity is not a problem because those attributes exist no matter what, right? Not in every single person, obviously, but you can find those in a great variety of fields. So one, I enjoy seeing people come in like when they want to get into cybersecurity and then they flourish. That's awesome. That's what I did, right? I also like seeing people who come from outside, either IT or maybe librarians or truckers or welders or whatever, and come from outside the industry and come in so that they can be that. Like I had a LinkedIn post that was like, hire your plumber, right? Like uh, I have a buddy of mine. He's a pipe fitter. He is going to be outstanding in our field. Uh, he doesn't want to do it. He has no patience for it. I'm gonna get his son. His son wants to get into scary, so I'm gonna get him. But uh, I couldn't get my buddy. My buddy Andy, no interest. But that I think is pretty cool. I like seeing that. I have seen that, and I like encouraging people to get in. One of the coolest stories I heard recently was uh, Maria Graham. She's the seller for uh, Newspire, and her friend is Chris Roberts, very, very well known. He right, and she had a book that her her, I think seven-year-old daughter was reading and about cybersecurity and hackers. And she's like, do you know any hackers? And she's like, yeah. So she called Chris and Chris like talked to this little girl about what being a hacker was, right? And that is so cool. I love it, right? That is so awesome. And so whether it is any type of diversity, women, whatever, different careers, neurodiverse, whatever, like I'm all about it because I think that this industry, it's not for everyone, but Damn if it's not good for those someones, right? This is a great industry to be in. We're on the forefront of a whole lot of stuff. And if we take the focus, um, not from the bits and bytes stuff, but from a like enabling the business, enabling people, enabling the world, right? To live, operate, and work in cyberspace, then that's cool. Like that is, that is very, very neat to do. And I like slowly being more and more a part of that.
0: Yeah, look, I, we had a we had a few people on talking about this previously about neurodiversity in cyber. Holly Foxcroft, yeah, really, really, she she talks a lot on this. But I think one of the main things here is like not hiring a team of all the same thinking because ultimately groupthink is a bad thing. <laughs> like you, you really want to end up with different people, different backgrounds, and think in different ways.
1: I am so heavy. Like my direct word could not be a more different personality than I, and that is. So wonderful, because we do not need two of me in the room for, like, for God's sakes. No one needs that. And so it is so good. But it also is a wonderful forcing function for me to shut the hell up and force and draw out, because my natural tendency is to, like, do this, right? And so if it's a forcing function to pause and say, hold on. Before we end the call, Paul, I want to know what you have to say, right? or jay or, or, or like whomever right it's a forcing function for me to make sure that i um, that i'm passing the mic to other people right that are different than me in in whatever every possible way i'm not perfect i'm not perfect i like to talk right but i try i try and and we have a very solid very uh mutually respect or a uh, relationship based on mutual respect and we're different, and that's fine and great. And I love that. I don't want sameness. I like diversity. It's a good thing. So if you could have one wish in security to fix, what would it be? Enabling the business. I want everyone talking about enabling, right? Business, organization, the world, society, you name it, right? So not speeds and feeds, not outcomes, but enabling, right? That's what I want the focus to be. And everything
0: flows from that. So one of the things we always like to, and it's worth referring people onto this podcast, is um, is there another security leader that you think we should get on, someone we should talk to?
1: Yeah, my old boss, Brian Albin at Securex, is a uh, he's a fun guy who has a lot of very cool insights and observations on various topics like he's a thinker's thinker kind of guy right like he thinks deeply about things and finds fun ways to articulate
0: things that i really 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 enjoy fantastic so brent it's been a pleasure having you on thank you for your time where's the best place for listeners to hear from you get in contact with you linkedin linkedin works perfect all right we'll put a link in the bio thanks everyone